Hi everyone and welcome to my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. I know you're going to love the content here because you will gain inspiration, powerful tools and insights, and valuable knowledge. If you want more of this, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or visit me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. I'm Gila Glassberg, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. I have come to realize by counseling many, many women that this work is much deeper and greater than food and body image. It's the bigger picture challenges we face of love, belonging, acceptance, what our true values and goals are, noticing them, addressing them, and gaining skills to move forward. If you have been struggling with what your life's purpose is, or you just feel stuck in general and don't know what's holding you back, this podcast will enlighten and inspire you to take action and move forward. This podcast is about other women in the 21st century who feel that losing weight will fix all their problems or somehow meet their unmet needs. Hi, Tamima. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Absolutely. Okay, so Tamima Zucker is a social worker and she specializes in eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And we actually go way back. We're friends mm-hmm. for a long time. And go ahead, introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, Hi, everybody. So I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I've been in the field of eating disorders in various capacities. I think it's been about eight years now. I've been working at a day treatment program for over six years. I'm now the assistant clinical director there at Montanito, Manhattan. Um, I also work in private practice, and then I speak and write um, on the subjects of eating disorders and body image and other mental health-related issues, and I specialize, I like to say and think that I specialize in working within the Jewish community as well. So those are sort of my my main areas of um, interest and work at this point. Okay, that's awesome. Very impressive. And so I'm a registered dietitian and I am beginning my journey into working in the field of eating disorders. And I like to say like, I feel like I struggled with disordered eating as a teen, but never with the full diagnosis of an eating disorder. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience as a teenager with food, body image stuff, and how that affected you as a teen and how it affects you now. Sure. So yeah, that's that's also an important point to note that I'm recovered. Um, so I say recovered very specifically, meaning I'm not in recovery. There are sort of two schools of thought. One is that you're always in recovery, similar to the addictions model. Um, the other is that you can be fully recovered. That is the philosophy that I kind of subscribe to. So I do not have an eating disorder anymore, although I did at one point. And what is kind of cool, just briefly, is that where I work, Montanito, is a program that really supports clinicians who are recovered working in the field since I think it's also a debate too of should I say something should I not this is personal some people want to so I am recovered and I guess to start similarly I think when I was younger I struggled with disordered eating as well that was really like not picked up on by anyone even myself which I think is an important thing to note there are many people who struggle with disordered eating and an eating disorder and it's not simply denial that they know there's a problem but don't want to face it I think that there's also a lack of awareness given that our culture is so kind of flooded with disordered eating habits, both restrictive and binge-like, and even purging. Purging, you know, can be purging through exercise. How often do we hear someone say, like, it's okay if I eat this now, I'll work it off later. That's a part, um, technically. So I would say that when I was a teenager and I was younger, what really like young teens, I struggled with disordered eating, but I don't think I even knew it because it's so steeped in our culture, which is really heartbreaking. But then I developed a full-fledged eating disorder when I was sort of later in my teens and 
Oh man, that was that was a journey. Uh, where would you like me to begin, Gila? What would feel helpful? So I kind of want to hear when you say that you had like disordered eating patterns. Like, yeah. what do you think triggered that? Do you think it was just diet culture being so loud? No, um, it's a great question. I think it's never one thing, right? So it doesn't exist in a vacuum. I think it was probably a combination of, yes, diet culture in terms of really the, the fat phobic sentiments around us and people. I think everyone, you know, Gil and I have known each other for a long time. Like people around us just being normal, being like, what diet are you on? Which I never really felt like I was a part of, but I think I also just like didn't. So if we're talking about what is disordered eating really briefly, what does that mean to have kind of ordered <laughs> eating, if you will. Like I didn't, the definition I'd like to give is eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full and having variety, which doesn't mean that anything beyond that is necessarily disordered. Sometimes we eat emotionally. That's okay. Um, but I think like as a pattern to say like, I won't eat X or to say like, I won't eat when I'm hungry is a disordered kind of factor. So I would say that's more of what it was for me as opposed to like diet food rules where I just wasn't very in touch with hunger and fullness, or I would have these sort of like not compulsive episodes, but eat more like at the end of the day. I wouldn't eat throughout the day, but I eat a lot in the evening and that was considered normal to me, but that wasn't normal that my energy was not going to the right places, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it was probably a combo of sure, like diet culture in the sense that like messages being confusing around me about food and emotionally, like that was a time when there were lots of changes happening and when is life not full of change, but especially when we're adolescents and we can't handle our emotional experience as well. There's a lot of feedback or research around that. So I think it was sort of like interpersonal dynamics psychologically just I struggled with depression at the time I think there's this like culmination of different factors that when it first started it wasn't oh let me use food as a coping mechanism but I think that was sort of something that could have been kept an eye on but because it's so normalized it wasn't I don't blame anyone for that I don't think necessarily if someone had caught it that would have been it with my eating disorder I don't know I can't say that I don't think there's even a point in wondering but I think it was a combination of things long long answer for a short question right no that's a really good answer and I think it's like really important for listeners to hear who don't have any concept of like what the difference between dieting and eating disorder is like how like people think that's totally not the same thing but obviously like as I've been learning in in my own courses that like usually the start of an eating disorder is a diet that's like it can be yeah I think it can be I think it's not always um but I think that a diet doesn't help is what I like to tell people because people there's sort of a misconception that it's like eating disorder is a diet gone wrong and yes it totally can be that someone starts let's say restricting and that leads to either like a binge purge restrict cycle or maybe just the restrictive tendency but I think either way like a diet doesn't help the situation doesn't help someone who's already like steeped in using food to cope maybe with trauma with you know internally feeling like they don't have the coping mechanisms to tolerate their distress whatever the thing is the diet culture and the diets don't do anything good for people is what I I like to tell people right I mean I agree with that 100% like in my own practice I don't do dieting at all I use the approach of intuitive eating but we're not even going to go there tonight but but basically so you developed this like disordered eating pattern you weren't really aware of it your family maybe wasn't aware of it your friends weren't maybe aware of it and it wasn't anything too serious you would say yes until it became too serious and it was like too late to just break the pattern yeah I think it's so tricky and it's really I think it's a really important subject because I think that people I think disordered eating is sort of so normalized that people are like okay whatever it's not a problem 
Now, for some people, you could say like, that's partially true that it doesn't develop into a full-blown eating disorder. And yet the way it just briefly, the way I think of it is like, it's not helping you live a fulfilling life to also be experiencing that. Right. So even if someone's like, but I'm okay, I don't have a full eating disorder. It's like, sure. And like, are your values being lived to the fullest? If you're busy thinking about like how you're going to lose weight and what you're going to eat as opposed to like, I'm just enjoying my time with friends. But yeah, I, I think it was one of those things that spiraled, but I, I would even say that only recently have I noticed what my disordered patterns were before my eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Like I think until recent years, I would have just said like, it happened really fast. You know, it happened within like a very short time frame that I went from like a normal eater to full blown eating disorder. But actually now really knowing more about intuitive eating and disordered eating versus an eating disorder, I'm able to reflect on like, no, it like wasn't normal for a while, but I don't think I ever thought or anyone ever thought like this will turn into something because for many people, it doesn't. People can go through diets their whole lives and not have a full blown eating disorder. So I also want to be careful. This isn't meant to be like a message like you, it could happen to you. It could, it totally could, but it's not like you, it could happen. So don't like, don't do it. It's like, it might not happen. And that's why I always say like, and are you living your life to the fullest if you're busy worrying about dieting? It's just like my ESA. Yeah. That's a good point because like, I feel like a lot of our culture in general now is teaching people out of fear and like shame and guilt. And like, that's so not my approach. And I don't know, I follow, I'm very into Brene Brown and she's a, Mm -hmm. she's a shame researcher. Mm-hmm. And like, I just always go back to her research and I it just, we don't have to scare anyone into like not getting an eating disorder. We don't have to convince yeah. anyone not to go on a diet, like do whatever works for you. We're just talking about one person's experience. And like, sure. obviously there's obviously from your own clinical experience, you could say like, you know, 50% of my clients experience this, or this is very common. Yeah. Or you could also say like, this is just your experience and that, you know, maybe. Absolutely. Like- yeah. I can only speak for me. I think though that it's important to note, like I actually recently, last night I got into like a Facebook war. <laughs> with people because I've heard about these Facebook wars I say <laughs> and I like to think that I'm really respectful and kind I'm not like shaming anyone but someone was posting about like a group that basically like you win money when you post your weight and if your weight goes down you get money for it right. and I just posted it I was like as an eating disorder therapist and survivor like I just think people should be careful like this this group can promote like fat phobia and diet culture and of course people are like, keep your judgments right. to yourself and I was like I'm really not trying to judge I'm trying to help right. but I people hear that and they think what I mean to say is like you could catch an eating disorder and that's not my point my point is just is this are our eyes fully open to like what this is doing for us and the way that we live and like if that's what you do absolutely like you do you I'm not here to preach or to tell someone like you can't live like that and I think sometimes people go through things thinking like this is the way of the world as opposed to wondering like oh if I'm limiting my worth based on how I look like is that really in line with who I am and that's the question I just want to encourage people to be asking themselves as opposed to like exactly what you're saying scaring you into like you have to do it a certain way right and I have had some eating disorder clients myself and I have a supervisor who helps and it's just so interesting I always go back to this that this point and this like training that she's embedded in my mind is that we ask our clients like what's your value system why do you want to recover why do you want to get better is that behavior in line with your value system and it's like so different from what we're always taught about dieting like what's so bad about dieting like I just want to be healthy I just want to be happy I just want to be skinny and like of course there's nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy, happy, or skinny, but it's like, at what cost? Mm -hmm. I recently just learned that like a regular person would think about food, let's say 
15 to 20% of the day. When, when am I eating lunch? What am I making for dinner? Right. And someone with an eating disorder could be like 80 to 100% yeah. of the day. Yeah. So emotional energy, you only have a certain amount of emotional energy. Mm-hmm. And if you're delegating it to mostly your food, like it's really hard to live like a wholehearted life, like Renee Brown. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the ACT approach. Acceptance and commitment therapy is all about like, are you living according to your values? Right. And I think too, to add to your, your thought, the question of like, is this according to your value? And you had said like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a healthy, fit, skinny. Absolutely. And I would ask, and where is your, where is that coming from for you? Is that because someone else is telling you to is, you know, like that kind of a thing is an important question because I think that that some people are like, Oh, that's just the world. And you know, sometimes it takes a moment. I always promote curiosity. So being curious, like, is that, is even that in line with my value and where does it come from? I was recently talking to like, I'm a new mom, talking to new moms. And someone was saying like, I can't wait to like lose the baby weight. And all these people were sort of then going at like another group I'm in, you know, talking about like, Oh, you don't have to. Oh, you do. Oh, it's great. I feel great. And I, I just sort of left my little moment of, I think exercising after having a baby when you're ready to is wonderful. And what about you wants to, you know, what about you? Is it like, because you want the energy, you want to be strong because it's really hard to accept maybe a new body or, you know, like, is it because culture is looking at magazines that say like body after birth, go right back, you know, like just where is it coming from? And being curious about that, I think is really valuable and important as we're processing and reflecting what we're seeing in the world and what choices then we make. Right. And it's interesting um, about this whole like eating disorder, disordered eating like world that I'm like really embracing since I, you know, work with it on a daily basis. It's like, I always, I began to ask my clients this like so often and I see it in my own life is that when you're focusing on your food, let's say either restricting or binging or shopping for food or whatever it is, what are you not thinking about? Like it's easier in a way to deal with a food issue than to deal with, you know, a fight with my husband. So like we, you know, it's a coping mechanism that we're using in an eating disorder and even not in an eating disorder. Yeah. One of the things that I like to teach eating disorder clients very quickly when they come to the program is, um, I didn't make this up. I learned this from someone I used to work with, but explaining that an eating disorder is like a flower and how, what people like to talk about and notice and focus on is what, what's visible in a flower that people talk about the top, right? Like the bud or the bloom or whatever you want to call it. People don't look at a flower and say, look, look at that stem. They look at the top and they say that's so vibrant. And that's what happens with eating disorders. People focus on the symptoms. So, you know, people get caught up in, how much are you restricting? What's your weight? Did you purge twice yesterday? And people get alarmed and they get scared. And then beneath that top though, beneath that bud is the stem, which represents the emotional state. And beneath that even are the roots, which are the core beliefs or stuck points. And to fully recover from an eating disorder, you can't just look at the symptoms and only talk about, let's say, body image or food or a meal plan. We have to be looking at what is your emotional experience that's leading you here? What are you coping with? And even beneath that, what is your core belief? that you're addressing consciously or not consciously through whether it's food or self-harm or whatever the behavior is because it's all just sort of the top of what we see as opposed to the root of what we see Um, and I think it's it's a hard thing to do because treating an eating disorder is treating it behaviorally medically and psychiatrically and emotionally so it's not just you know one of those things and many people either in innocence or insurance companies will look at it like okay medically stable cool the person's recovered or you know oh they 
they haven't purged in a year. That means they're fixed as opposed to saying like, what are they emotionally and mentally still experiencing? Right, right. And that's why treating an eating disorder, it's so important to have a good team. You, you can't yes. just have a dietitian, you can't just have a therapist, yep. you have to really all come together and yes, together because there's just so many things you have to treat. Mm -hmm. um, so let's go back to your eating disorder. So, sure. so you were in high school and you had these symptoms, but no one really knew you didn't know yourself. Yeah, you don't do you, you're not really sure what triggered it. It's, it was a bunch of things. So when I've spoken about this before, it's funny, because I I, I I told you this earlier, actually, I rarely talk about my own story now. I'm comfortable doing it, but it's so funny because that's so, this is, I think is important to know. It's so behind me and I'm so in the world of eating disorders as a clinician now. So I almost have to think of like, okay, let, let's go back there for a second. Um, I'm happy um, you're saying this because I know that my school of thought was that you never recover from an eating disorder. Yeah. And I think that's why I didn't go into the field until I realized that that's not true. So, so you continue. Yeah, no, it's, it's really important. I think people believe that. Yeah. I have to like, really, I, I can recall everything very easily, but I almost have to like go there first. Um, so I think that the contributing factors were themes that really related to grief and loss for me. Sometimes when I've spoken like in schools before, I almost use this like chart of a staircase and explain that an eating disorder is not like you just go into it, you wake up one day, but it's really, it could be a culmination of your whole life. So I usually start with like my temperament when I was born, like I'm a youngest child, I'm a sensitive person, like all of those things. Mm -hmm. That's a factor. So I think there were, there was a lot of grief and loss. Um, and I've always been pretty afraid of like death and growing up and I think that everything kind of came together as I was preparing to graduate high school and get ready for this next chapter and that's when everything kind of hit very very hard and I also think I just didn't have like the coping skills to know what to do with that I started school when everyone you know most of my friend group I, I'll say was like off for a gap year I didn't do that so I was kind of like alone mm -hmm. so I was lonely and afraid of growing up and feeling this grief of like my life is changing and my friends, you know, my friend groups are changing and it all came together and it definitely was not conscious. You know, it wasn't like, Ooh, I'll decide to have an eating disorder or even like, let me use the food to cope. It was just sort of my brain just like hit a switch, which actually research shows that for some people genetically, this is what they're finding that if you go at a, to a certain weight, at least with like with anorexia nervosa, which is not even the most common eating disorder, but with that one in particular, it's almost like a, a switch gets flicked on and the eating disorder kind of gains momentum very quickly. Mm -hmm. So it happened somewhat quickly in the sense of like how much I dove into it um, at a very fast pace, which everyone's story is so different, right? So some people are like stably unstable for like 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. And some people are, are doing this roller coaster and some people it's hidden from everyone in their lives. So just to be clear, and I think most people know this, but like I'm one person. So I would be so upset if people took like what I'm about to say or what I'm sharing here to mean like this is every case because it's so not uh, true at all. Uh, but yeah, it happened really kind of fast, if you will. So let me just ask you a question. Now, as an adult processing what happened then, you're able to say like, I think it could be a combination of all these things. And like maybe even a main factor is that you don't, you didn't have those coping skills. Yeah. But at the time, were you processing that at all? Or you were just in the like anorexic mind? Yeah, I think that I was very aware of how a like clinically depressed I was and lonely I was, but I don't think I was aware of like what I was doing. And then my eating disorder really became my whole life, my whole life, maybe like 
3% was on, I had a boyfriend at the time. So he, I think he kept me alive, you know, so like my relationship with him, which was long distance and school, I was in school. I did not do well in school, but it was like something I was trying to hold on to. So I think that uh, really like 97% of me was just like my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were like basically swept away by this eating disorder. Yeah. And um, so did you, you, did you get yourself into treatment? Did somebody else put you into treatment? No. So trying to remember, uh, I did a few different rounds of treatment. So the first time it was my family who were involved. Not everyone has family involved. Not everyone has a support system. Also, some people are like, oh, I like lived my full life. You know, like I, my eating disorder became like 97% of me. There are some people who are like, I have a full identity. Like it's just on the back burner, but like very present. So the first time I went into treatment was my parents. I would say. And then the second time, which was very brief and I was not willing to do it. So I just kind of left. The second time was me. And the factor there that I think was sort of a really beautiful thing is that my dad at the time was working at the Orthodox Union and they produced this film, Hungry to be Heard, which was many, many years ago. And it featured clinicians and then men and women who were eating disorder survivors. And I actually like knew a couple of the people hadn't, I hadn't known like they had had eating disorders. And I think for me, I had been so in denial and so ashamed of my eating disorder for a lot of reasons, but especially because I felt like this doesn't really happen in the Jewish community, which Mm -hmm. I knew logically like wasn't so true, but I don't feel like I had evidence that it wasn't true. So seeing this film actually was the instigator in my even admitting I had a problem, which was like months into my eating disorder until that point, even when I was someone who medically became very unstable, even at that point, I was like, nope, you're wrong. My labs are wrong. My heart beats wrong. Like you're all crazy. But that was the first time I was like, oh, this is a real problem. Other people have it. If I have it, maybe I'm not like this terrible person. And I then pursued treatment like a week later. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy for so many reasons. So let me just ask you, when you, yeah. your parents put you into treatment, was that they, they like, no, they picked up on it because you weren't acting yourself. You weren't it was just very obvious yeah they um so they mostly noticed how much I wasn't acting like myself and I like to share that with people too because people often assume like unless I see that my person is like going to the bathroom after meals like it's not a problem and I say like look for like mood shifts mood look for changes sure around food but also just overall especially with big life events um so I think that yes they noticed like my food was different but they also were just like you're really like retreating into yourself um, and I recall this was like starting school around the like the high holidays, Jewish high holidays, and I went home and they were just like, what's going on? Something's wrong. And I was like, no, everything's fine. Everything's cool. School's great, blah, blah, blah. And I was seeing a therapist at the time um, that I had been seeing for years. And my sort of a few months later, my dad said to me, you know, I'm really concerned. I'd like to come with you to a therapy session. Um, And I said, yes, which I always share is an important anecdote because a part of me knew something was going on. I mean, at the time I was probably like, there's no problem. So you can call, I was very like a lot of attitude, but at the time I also, there must've been a part of me that was like, yeah, I need some help like you can come because otherwise I could have just said like no I don't want you there I'm over 18 right and he came with me and he told my therapist like we're seeing a major shift her eating has changed we're really concerned and she said so all future clinicians out there never say this she said like leave it alone it'll go away by itself and my dad who is a really just well-educated man in a lot of ways literally said like okay we'll never be seeing you again thank you so much which like had its own problem just because I should have had a say in that but he was like no you never say that for someone who might be struggling with something behaviorally Um, so he I think my parents then sort of took this next step to be like all right she needs more than this like this is not going well 
and found me a program um, that I checked myself out of after <laughs> not a long period of time. Right. That's an important piece. And also the therapist, you had been seeing her for many years. Was this because of like your fear of death or fear of grief? Yeah, it was in relation to, I. so I had a really difficult time coping with, my grandmother passed away in high school and I had a really difficult, difficult time coping with that. And then I was in like a really emotionally abusive relationship, which at the time I think no one took super seriously, but really contributed to my my stuck points and my core beliefs and my depression. I was the one who actually said when I was younger than this, obviously, like I want to see a therapist. I don't I don't feel okay. Um, so I've been seeing your parents were on board with that. Yeah, and that that was a supportive relationship with your therapist. Yeah. So until that moment where maybe she wasn't trained in eating disorder. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what you would say. That's what you would say. Maybe like why she said that. Probably. I mean, and I think that's where it's like if you don't know, don't pretend to know. That's okay if you don't know. If someone comes to me and says I want to talk to you about you know ADHD, I would say I'm not the person. You know, I can do my research, I can talk, I can get consultations, but I'm not an expert in that. Right. So I think that I think she just didn't know. And I think people assume that this is like a teenage phase. They assume that like especially young women, and we know that not all people who have eating disorders are women by any means, but especially young women are, you know, they struggle with things with food and like it was a stressful time. And I think it doesn't have to be there's a gray area. It doesn't have to be like sound the alarm. Someone is eating differently. They need to rush to inpatient. And it also doesn't have to be like leave it alone. It can be like we have to monitor this. Let's get other team members on the case here. Let's explore. Like I need to ask more questions. I think that there's a gray that so many people are afraid of like what does this mean? What do I do with it? And there are people that you can add on to your team. If you're watch let's say you're watching this and you're a therapist and you think like I don't know if I'll ever be an expert in eating disorders. It's okay. You can get someone else on board who is and have a team member, you know, have a full team of a dietitian, you as a therapist, an eating disorder therapist, like that's an okay thing. So now looking back on that, reflecting on that happening, let's say like for people who are listening, mm -hmm. what should we be looking out for if we're not gonna, we're not gonna sound the alarm at any, sure. you know, <laughs> mood change or change in eating, but we also want to monitor it. So how do we go about that? Like without yeah. making it worse? Yep. I think um, first reflecting on like, what does a day look like or a week? Because sometimes a day people will choose a day where they're like, that day was cool, you know, but what does a week of eating look like for you? Not that it needs to be primarily about eating, but that helps us pay attention to, does it seem like, you know, this is disorder? Does it seem like nothing? You know, what, what does that look like? I think it's also really exploring mental status, if you will, just clinical term in terms of is the person um, presenting as alert, oriented? Are they forthcoming about their emotions? Are they shut down? Are they guarded? Like just noticing how someone is presenting. I think that getting ideas of, I think we have to like paint the full picture, you know? So it's sort of like, how are you sleeping? So it's not just like, what is your eating? What's your weight? Weight also doesn't really, that's a whole other story we can talk yeah. about. Like weight doesn't yeah. really have to play a factor at all. Right. Right. Um, but it's also like, what is your life looking like right now? And the hard thing is, unless someone's honest, we don't know. Cause yeah. we could have someone go for labs. Some people's labs are always normal, right. you know, things like that. So yeah. it's really tough because if someone sort of just lies, it's really hard to know, but that's where sometimes getting any type of supporter involved and asking, can you, do I have consent to call your best friend? Do I have consent to call your mom? Things like that. But it's, it's not limiting by just saying like, let's check your weight. Oh, your weight's in range. So you must not have a problem, which is right. again, its own issue. Right. But it's really like, let's paint a full picture. And then the first step typically is let's get a full team involved, right? So if someone's seeing just a therapist, just a dietitian, let's get a psychiatrist. Let's make sure you're going to a medical doctor who is like informed about disordered eating, eating disorders, health at every size if possible, things like that. Um, and then the other thing that can happen is have someone do an assessment with a treatment program because people are actually then informed what level of care they 
need. So I think usually sometimes people will call and say like, I need this. And they're informed, like, actually, we're going to ask you a series of questions and then you're going to be informed what we as the experts are deeming what you need, which can be in a way comforting because people might think like treatment means inpatient, but maybe you just need some IOP, which is a few times a week for a few hours um, to help support you on just like maintaining what you need to do to have this like full life, which is what I hope for people. Right. And I think that back to like the whole fear thing, like people are just so afraid of the unknown that like they don't want to call or they don't want to take the first step or they don't want to be forced into treatment. And like sort of like to piggyback off of that, you said that your parents checked you into a treatment center, which you were allowed to check yourself out of. So you talk to me a little bit about like if somebody's forced into treatment, like how effective that is? I think it depends on the person. I, I, it was also, it was a lower level of care. So I wasn't there for that long. I think it's people. Okay. So I don't think it's so black or white. Like people have to be ready and willing or they can't get better. Mm -hmm. I think like if I meet a client who on day one tells me like, I don't want to be here. My partner is making me come. Otherwise I would not be here. I might say to that person like, okay, what could you get out of being here? How could we help you? I've had teenagers especially say to me like, it'll get my mom off my back. And I'm like, great. That's all I need. That let's work together on that. You don't really want her doing that. She probably will keep doing that unless you're showing that you can be like an independent person. So can you work with me on that? So I think you can always find a goal that the person can work on. That doesn't mean they're ready to fully recover. I don't really expect anyone to come into treatment. It's, it happens. It's rare and say like, I'm ready to let go of this. People often don't want to seek help because they don't want to let go because it's serving such a purpose. So, and that's part of what treatment does. We look at how is this serving a purpose for you? Is that the same purpose that it served when it started? Maybe it's totally different now. And then what will your life look like as you're starting to like kind of let it go in pieces and how can we help you grieve that as a part of the treatment? So I do think it's possible for people to get help even if it's not their idea to go for treatment if the people who they're working with can say like I can't force you to want to get better but what can we agree to work on at this point right that's such an interesting point and um it's actually interesting you said like you as part of treatment you could like grieve the parts of the eating disorder that you're letting go of right and I recently was just reading on Rachel Tuckman's um podcast she's a licensed mental Mm -hmm. health counselor and she was talking about like sensitive people and like I relate to it because like I was always told like you're so sensitive you're so sensitive which was like the most painful thing for me and when I was reading that I was like wow that's so powerful that like there are just people in this world like 15 to 20 percent of people who are have like this more sensitive nature like you said you're a sensitive person you're the youngest like there's so many factors that can contribute to that high sensitivity level but it's just so interesting that like I feel like maybe you could tell me but I feel like someone with an eating disorder and especially someone who's like highly sensitive like they become like such a wholehearted or completely healed person going through this process because most people don't don't let you go so deep into your emotions. Whereas eating disorder treatment knows that like there's so much mental complexity there. I think so. I mean, I always tell clients, I said this yesterday, like in a group, you know, if you're expecting that you'll recover and you'll magically no longer feel anxious and your depression will be gone and you'll handle life and it'll be amazing. Like you're wrong, you know, but you will have more coping skills and you will know that when something happens, it's not all or nothing. And you can cry as opposed to you can go like purge. Uh, Carolyn Costin, who started Montanito and was one of the first pioneers in terms of like being a recovered person as a clinician. She always used to say eating disorder clients, 
science or like the canaries in the coal mine in the sense that back in the day, if they were testing whether a coal mine was safe, they would send in a canary, which are like highly, highly sensitive birds. And if they would come out of the coal mine, it was a safe place. And if they didn't, it meant that there could be like even a slight thing that someone else wouldn't pick up on that was not safe for humans to go down there. And she always said people with eating disorders are the the canaries were hypersensitive, take in things. Absorb everyone's energy. Exactly. And I think that, you know, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's all assets and liabilities in the sense that that also means that we can be really passionate. We can be really empathic. And I think that empathic, empathetic, I always confuse which one is which. Either one. But I think that that's, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And I'm still an incredibly sensitive person. That's the thing about recovery. Sure. I'm fully recovered. I'm still sensitive. I still, and I can also say when I'm having a reaction to something, let's say I see someone, great example. I think everyone can relate to this. You're walking on the street, you see two people laughing and looking at you and you're, you know, some people maybe might hear this and be like, okay, right. a lot of people are sensitive. Like, is it me? Is there, some, is there something oh, on? Yeah, I'm so, I can <laughs> feel like that happened to me 20 times today. Like, right. That's like a common thing. I think that at this point with all the work that I've done and the work that I continue to do in the sense that you're always growing, I'm recovered. I don't use food in any way, but I'm always growing human being. Now, instead of sort of being like, oh my God, I can stop even and be like, okay, it could be there's something they're laughing at. Or like, are you doing that thing you do? Where like you assume, and then I can just like move on as opposed to maybe like stopping in somewhere and being like, what's wrong with me? Everyone hates me, which is what I used to feel like. You know, like this is just, because it's me and now I'm okay it could be they're laughing at me that could be true it's not saying like it's not about you to me i like no maybe they are maybe I look ridiculous maybe they hate my shoes right but also like does that matter and like could it be something else okay it could I'm gonna move on now right so interesting because I was gonna ask you this is a perfect example I was gonna ask what I see in my practice and like I, I guess this is new since I'm like newly working in my practice that res- binging but also restricting is a coping mechanism yes. just like somebody who's struggling with emotional pain they might cut themselves so that they don't have to feel that emotional pain the same with restricting you could sort of get some sort of high from being hungry or numbing yeah I think that people often describe restricting as a bit more passive and binging and purging as more active in the sense that sometimes people will intentionally think I'm gonna eat that meal and then restrict as a way of sort of like as a reaction or coping I think more people will say it feels like a baseline of like restriction feels very passive in this even though it is active in the sense that it feels like that's just like kind of what I do whereas binging or purging feels like I'm taking an action I'm going to like get the food I'm going to do x and some people might disagree but that's what I've heard for the most part so I think some people feel like more shame with the binging and purging for various reasons and one of them being it feels like an active thing like I I could stop that whereas people will say like oh the restriction is just like that's what I do right which is interesting to note as well it's like a non-act I'm not eating. yeah for some people absolutely right so I wanted to just address the other part of your journey to recovery recovery was that you said that you watched a video about like Jewish people, like Orthodox Jews who were suffering from eating disorders. And for you, that was very, I guess, healing or like opened you up to recovery because maybe there's, you feel like there's, you felt like there was this stigma against mental health or eating disorders in the Jewish world. Is that how you felt? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I, um, I think that at the time, the only people I had known who had eating disorders, either I felt like they got over it really quickly, which isn't necessarily true but you think about just to tie in for a second like the media's portrayal of eating disorders like if anyone knows there was a character on Glee who had an eating disorder and like three episodes later she was okay so it it comes off to a lot of people it's also very secretive of like oh it happened now you're done when it can be like the average of seven years of you know recovery 
But anyway, yeah, I think I felt like the only people I had known were like someone who like came and spoke in our school, you know, and like a neighbor of mine. And that was really it. And I always say like, I was super judgmental before I knew and had an eating disorder. I heard about like Mary Kate Olson when I was a kid and I was like, she should just eat. This is right. Right. Um, So I get it. Right. You feel like you were judging yourself? I think I, well, I was judging myself because I was like, you should just get over this. Like you're, you know, you're, I don't know, you stop it. Like this is silly. But I think more so like that people, I think people assume that if you had an eating or you have an eating disorder, like you understand it when really like I didn't understand it until I went through it. So when I meet families, especially who are sort of like, why does this person, why does he do this? Like, why can't he stop? I want to pause and instead of getting angry, validating and saying like, yeah, it's really confusing. It's really hard to understand. Right. Yeah. I think I, didn't get it at all. And I also think that I, so I definitely was familiar with depression and like my friend group and things like that. But I also feel like I didn't necessarily have people around me that I knew were like struggling with something, even though people could have been, but it wasn't either. It wasn't talked about or it wasn't really happening at that point. And so I felt like I was really isolated and I felt shame. Um, and I felt like on the one hand, part of me was like, you don't even have a problem. On the other hand, it was like, you should just stop doing this, but you can't cause you have a problem. And it was like these conflicting parts of me, which we call, this is Carolyn Costin's kind of turn, like the eating disorder self and the healthy self. You know, Mm -hmm. so a part of me was like, you need help. This is an issue. You're like not forming sentences. And the other part of me was like, this is like nothing. But yeah, I think that video that just like opened my eyes to the fact that I wasn't alone. That's one of the reasons why even now I continue to be open about my history, even though like my, my role, I think in the eating disorder field is definitely clinician based because it's, it's a real thing that happens. I also think like, I'm not, and I don't say this in a self-pity way. Like, I'm not that special. Like, I'm, I'm like an average gal that like this happened to. And it, it's not because I had this terrible upbringing, which some, that, that is, can be a factor for some people. But I just was a person who didn't really know how to cope. And food became the way that I coped. Right. So what would be like your, like what I'm hearing you saying is like, kind of like breaking the stigma against like either mental health or an eating disorder, having the support. And also, like you said, grieving the eating disorder. So for me that, and validating. So like a lot of this is like all that emotional work, like you were saying. Like, yes. like the example you were saying, you see somebody, two people on the street laughing, you think it might be you, you're able to have that CBT conversation yes. in your head, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Yes. Noticing the thought, what's your automatic thought, and then changing it with something more positive. So what would you say is like, let's say somebody's listening to this who's struggling with disordered eating, eating disorder, or has a family member, what would be like your three top tips? Okay. So I think it's tough because my tips are always really general because everyone's so different and all eating disorders are so different. I think one is again, it, it's sort of vague, but I've seen this always work. Be curious and be non-judgmental because I think that lack of those things leads to increased shame spiral, increased secrecy. Mm-hmm. And non-judgmental also includes like not blaming, not blaming yourself, not blaming the person, let's say in the client role, if you're a family member or a partner or a friend or something and being curious and not saying, I think even not saying like, I listened to this thing right. and I know now that you do this and saying like, I listened to this thing and it made me wonder like, are, do you feel like you're grieving or you know like you tell like does grief ever feel like it plays a role because someone else might say like that's not me at all so being curious will not like steer you wrong um and being non-judgmental i think the idea just from what we talked about that's important is like you don't have to want to fully recover to make change so you don't have to be committed to saying like you know what you're telling me that everything we know about diets in terms of you know 95 percent of people who go on a diet all that stuff like you're telling me this but i'm not sure i'm ready to give up yet that doesn't mean that you don't have to seek help or be you 
you're yourself curious, right. uh, see where it takes you. You don't have to be committed to the end goal. If anything, it's more about like, what are you ready for right now? Because I think that stops people from getting help. They're sort of like, I know what you're going to tell me to do. You're going to tell me to recover and I don't want to. And it's like, right. you can all get help. Does that play into the whole like perfectionism? Like many people with it, they say. Many Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it could be for some people. I also think some people are like, I'm not yet drinking the Kool-Aid. So like, if I don't want to fully recover yet, what's the point? Like, so in a way it could be perfectionism. I, I think a little bit more so like the black or white. Mm-hmm. It could also just be like, I'll, I'll wait till I'm ready. I've asked clients, it's like a fun little game I play. Like, okay, so when do you think you'll, you'll be recovered? Right. Or when do you think you'll want to recover? And I'm, and they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, in like two years, you're like, oh, totally. And right. we get to a point until we can say like, what's the divide? And usually it's like somewhere in six months. Cause I'm like a year and they're like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like three months are like, no. Right. And then we look at like, okay, so what are you willing to do today? And you also don't have to have a benchmark. We don't know when you're going to recover. It's like a fun little thing I like to do. That's really great. And also like this training I was saying with Jessica Setnick, like she always, she always like refutes that idea. Like somebody can never recover. Cause she said, if they're better from yesterday till today, like they sure. feel 1% better than you did. Like you did a good job and they're doing a good job. It's not about hundred percent recovery. It's about moving one step yes. forward. And even if yeah. it's steps back, like you're still, you know, making that progress. You're trying. Yeah. yeah. I think the, um, the kind of like the last thing, and there could be so many more is like a full team is crucial. So anyone who says like, I don't need, uh, this person. Cause I have that, like everyone's trained with expertise in different areas. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a dietitian. I can't pretend to be, you could tell me your meal plan and I could think like, cool, that sounds good. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. So a full team is so essential. And so like, I just think people dismiss that and they're like, I'll be fine with my psychiatrist. And it's like, you need everybody. Might not be the case for disordered eating as much, but I would say like being open to who is recommended to you. If you're willing to say like, this isn't really working for me or I want to explore a difference. Cause I think, um, and, and giving consent, people should be talking to each other. Your therapist and dietitian should be collaborating. You can do, you know, like a session with both people at some point. For sure. That's for sure. One of the best things that people can do. And even just for that additional support, two people care about me, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think that that's, that's sort of like where I would start. I think everyone's so different. So it's, it's really hard to know, but those are the three I would start with. Okay. Awesome. Super informative. And <laughs> do, you want, do you want to say like where people can find you or reach you? Yeah. So I have a website. It's www.tamima.com. Um, my name is spelled T-E-M as in Mary, I-M as in Mary, A-H. So that has a bit of information on my private practice and what I do. And like, if people are interested in hearing me speak and things like that, yeah, I appreciate Gila, you arranging this. This has been really great. It's so awesome. I learned so much. Maybe we can do it again. We'll do like a part two. Totally. And people can send in their questions if they want. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Thank you all so much for being here on my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what intuitive eating is, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or follow me on Instagram at Gila Glassberg. Thank you so much. Have a great day.